Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. First, let me just start out with announcements. We've got upcoming PI and security conferences that I need to tell you about. And so the first is the World Association of Detectives. They were established in 1925, and they're celebrating their 90th anniversary in Toronto, Canada, September 2nd through the 6th. If you're interested, go to to, uh, wad.net for details. Congratulations to the World Association of Detectives. Then secondly, co-sponsored by the National Council of Investigation Security Services and the Nevada Society of Professional Investigators, that is a mouthful, in Las Vegas, September 20th to the 22nd, go to nciss.org, N like Nancy, C like Charles, I-S-S, org.org for details. And if you're a private investigator, my guest Kevin Rippa is known to many of you. But if whether you're a PI or not, you are in for a treat today. And I just heard from Kevin. He's on the line here. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Francie. How are you? I'm great. And I just uh, you just told me that you're going to be speaking at the World Association of Detectives Conference in Toronto next week. So that's great. That's correct. And I'm very much looking forward to it. So if anybody's interested in catching him live in Toronto, um, you know, go to WAD.net and see if you can still get to the conference. So today, Kevin is going to unpack and unplug the Ashley Madison Internet married dating site and the hacking. Uh, but Kevin, before we get started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been uh, doing uh, investigation work since about 1992 and uh, made the move to full-time cyber uh, about 1999-2000 insofar as that's all we do is cyber investigations, whether they be online. Uh, We have a focus on cybersecurity, so we do incident response. We respond to hacking incidents uh, to remediate systems, try to find the bad guys, We do computer forensics as well as uh, a data recovery lab with a class 100 uh, clean room, and uh, we do lab-level data recovery. That's quite quite a bit. So you're actually located in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. That's correct. And uh, the joke I tell is that my furniture actually lives there, and I live on an airplane, and I go visit (laughs) my furniture once in a while. And I, I know that's true because I see you all over the country. <laughs> so I know you're always speaking uh, to different groups, and that's very much appreciated because you have lots of uh, good information to tell people about. So um, how do you become licensed in Canada, or in Calgary, actually? Well, much like uh, the United States, uh, rather than states, Canada's broken up into provinces and territories. And uh, we're, uh, we're governed by a provincial authority. In Alberta, we're governed by the uh, Alberta Department of Justice. And uh, a subset of that is their security program uh, that is basically our, our oversight. And uh, you have to meet minimum standards. There's training that you do have to have uh, in private investigation to conduct uh, to get a private investigator's license. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have uh, agency licenses 
and uh, individual licenses. And you can hold an individual license without having to have an agency license, but you can't do work except for an agency. I see. So you could have an agency with employees that could do work. But if you're going to do work on your own, you have to be licensed individually. That's correct. And how do you qualify for licensure? Well, uh, now there is a course that has to be taken. I, it's been, uh, obviously, when I, uh, when I started in the business, it was much, much easier to become a PI. Basically, you had to be a Canadian citizen and have somebody say something nice about you. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I joined the uh, Alberta Association of Private Investigators very shortly after that and uh, moved up to the position of president. For a few years, and uh, myself and a committee that we had formed uh, helped write a new act for private investigation in Alberta. Uh, a number of years after that, the government basically uh, looked at it and adopted pieces of it and came out with a, a program that mandated training. But because many of us were grandfathered in and I'm no longer the president, I can't tell you exactly how many hours, but I believe the training is 60 to 80 hours of classroom. Uh, and then, um, you know, you have to write an exam and then every, uh, every two years you need to requalify and not with taking a course, but basically you have to stay up to date. Uh, you have to, um, you know, if you let your license lapse, there's, there's no grace period. You have to start all over again. And Mm -hmm. the, uh, private investigators license isn't all encompassing. Uh, it covers just private investigation. So if you're planning on doing uniform security work, you need a, a separate designation. Oh, I if see. you're doing okay. uh, executive protection, that's a separate designation. Okay. Now, does it also require you to work uh, intern or be mentored by somebody before you're licensed? No. Um, I, I think that uh, I think California has really paved the way for that, and uh, I believe that that very much should be a model for many other jurisdictions, but uh, sadly, no, we, we don't have such a thing. Okay, all right. And so you've been licensed since, when, when did you say? How long ago? Well, I've been licensed, I think, since 1992. And, okay. uh, I mean, currently, I don't, ever since I've gone cyber, we, there's no uh, no necessity within uh, Alberta's legislation that says that computer forensics needs to be a licensed PI. There's, I believe, variously six states in the U.S. that say you have to be. Yeah, um, that's a we very... We don't have to be here, yeah. but for various business and credibility reasons, I maintain that license. And uh, we also, completely separate from this company, have a, uh, a bodyguard agency. And we do protection work for heads of state and entertainers and things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, I would have to hold a, uh, like I hold a bodyguard license up here. And uh, so it's just as easy to keep the PI license and keep it current. Yeah, that whole uh, issue of licensing for computer forensics is very controversial uh, everywhere. Well, and you're absolutely right. It's very controversial. And, uh, you know, there's... I, I see arguments to both sides of it, and my personal opinion is that there does need to be some kind of a regulating body. I mm-hmm. do believe that it needs to be national, not local, for many reasons, and I don't think that uh, private investigation should have a whole lot to do with it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I see that point as well. Uh, it's it's complicated. It's complicated because you're dealing with evidence, Very. and uh, uh, a lot of times in the judicial process, and that gives you a whole different level of uh, requirements that you have to, hoops you have to jump through. 
Well, and a very big part of it, too, is the fact that, you know, when you're working as a PI in California or Arizona or wherever it may be, in large part, your investigations are, shall we say, local, at least within the state. Uh Sometimes you cross state lines, but not very often. In computer forensics, just about every artifact, especially when you're dealing with network forensics, is going to be from somewhere else. And so how do you come up with standards in California that might jive with standards in New York or China or Taiwan? Um, there's so much, like there is no border on the Internet. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. It's, it's not uncommon for us to start an investigation in Calgary that puts us on a plane to British Columbia and then Australia. And, uh, you know, how if there was licensing state by state or province by province, how do you control that? How does that extend beyond the border? And that's why I think a national uh, set of standards is what needs to happen. And I know Mm -hmm. that there's groups that are working towards that, but it's an uphill battle. It is. It is. Now, uh, Kevin, I saw in your bio that you are a former member of the Department of National Defense. What is that? Uh, that's our army. Okay. So, well, our military department of national defense covers army, air force, uh, and navy reserves. Okay, and so special you special forces. Okay, so you were you served in the military, or was this how? How did this work? Yeah, I served in the army for twelve years um, around the world. Uh, nothing related with computers. Okay, uh, but. <laughs> Back then, uh, I, I don't want to uh, let anybody know just how long in the tooth I am, but the only people <laughs> that had computers back in my day were the administration clerks, and they were those big monitors with the little green letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it wasn't the kind that took up a whole room. <laughs> we didn't go back that far. <laughs> not quite that big, but not far off. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, so let's talk about Ashley Madison. Six months ago, most of us had never even heard of Ashley Madison. So um, this internet ma- meeting site, I guess, uh, life is short, have an affair is their motto. What do we really know? Well, Ashley Madison was set up as a niche market. Um, I wouldn't even call it a dating site because that was not the intent behind it. The intent behind it was basically a hookup site. You want to have an affair, uh, this is the place to come. Okay. And uh, so that was their claim to fame. And it was, you know, somewhat of a, shall we say, the higher end of the market, if you could make a target like that from a website. Um, and, and they've been around for quite some time and, uh, you know, reputable in their arena, I would suppose. Uh-huh. And then uh, about a month ago, they uh, a bunch of employees came to work and turned their computers on, and there was a message from uh, a group calling itself the Impact Team, stating that they had been able to compromise all of their data and client lists and were going to release it unless Mr. Biderman shut down uh, not only AshleyMadison.com, but uh, he has a couple of other interests, and they wanted him to shut everything down. Now, uh, in the security community, we look at something like that and we say that uh, that's, that was, even though that's a stated goal, that wasn't truly what they wanted. They, whenever we see hacks that have completely irrational goals, 
we know that they're just saying things for the sake of saying things because they absolutely want to release the information, mm-hmm. but they want to maybe pander to the uh, social morals of the average person and say, well, you know, we offered them uh, a way out, but they didn't take it. Well, some of these ways out are, are completely, you know, irrational. You're not going to meet them. So from the very beginning, it was believed that they had every intention of releasing the data. Now, they had, uh, uh, once obviously the deadline came and went, they sent another message saying that some information had been released. Now, uh, and they said where it had been released. Um, In my opinion, the uh, response from Ashley Madison wasn't the the best response, shall we say. Um, in, In the cyber world, you never look at hackers and challenge them because you're going to lose every single time. It doesn't matter what kind of security you're running. Someone will get in if, if they want you bad enough, it's just going to happen. The only way that you're 100% protected is to not be connected. And so Ashley Madison's response publicly was to essentially say, oh, that's not our data, this is a data set that we're unfamiliar with, there's no indication that this is any of our customers. Right. And right. That, that was their public response. So the individuals over at Impact Team released a second set of data, which also included all of the C-suite details for everybody at Ashley Madison. And stuff okay, that say, could only say have what come that off is. Of their, what is that, Kevin? The C-suite. The C-suite, the CEO, the CFO, the CISO, everybody, oh, all okay. the executive okay. board members. Okay. And uh, essentially all of their personal information that had been sitting on the Ashley Madison servers. And uh, then the impact team sent out a tweet basically saying to, uh, the, the CEO's name is Neil, basically saying uh, something to the effect of, now, now what are you going to do, Neil? The truth is out. And uh, so they released all of his information uh, as well. So now Ashley Madison basically had to finally admit that, yes, this is us and, and we've been hit. Okay. So at this point, the... What should, uh, what should they have done, in your opinion? Well, quite frankly, I don't think that there's anything that they could have done in terms of a response. Uh, when you're in a situation, especially given how things transpired, the unfortunate thing about cyber is you cannot close that gate once it's open. Right. Uh, once they have the data, there is no response because the fact that they got the data shows that there was some type of a security problem at Ashley Madison or, or any website that gets hacked. How did they hack it? What were they able to get? So if, if somebody hacks a network but there's nothing there to get, you're, you're never going to hear about it because it wasn't salacious. There wasn't a lot of juice there. Mm-hmm. But when you hack someone like Ashley Madison and you're able to get names, address, phone number, credit card information, um, personal preferences, what it is that you would like to find in someone you're going to have an affair with, all of the, basically every single bit of content on the Ashley Madison servers, they have. And so then you have customers coming back and saying, how could this not have been protected? How could you have allowed this to happen? Why do they have our credit card information? Right. And so from the Ashley Madison standpoint, 
once that stuff has been released, that's, that's the real problem. And how do you spin that? How do you make that go away? Well, the answer is that you can't. And until we start educating people, well, let me rephrase that. Until people start educating themselves a little more on computers and how the computer world works, this is going to continue to happen, and they are going to erroneously continue to point the finger at what they perceive to be the bad guy, but isn't really the bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to computers, we've taken, and I say this at just about every lecture I give, we take arguably the most technologically advanced piece of equipment ever devised for human personal consumption, and we put it in the hands of people with zero training and essentially say, figure it out. Right. So they click a few buttons, click a few icons, move the mouse around, and all of a sudden they, they think that they know what it is that they need to know to use a computer, when in, in reality it's entirely different. The onus certainly falls upon many of the users who will go to these sites. Right. You are never anonymous on the Internet. Yeah. To suggest me, that you co- can log in... Kevin, we need to think, we need to take a quick break. Let's come back to that because this is this is really an important area. I want to de- delve into some more. Um, more to come from private investigator and computer forensic expert Kevin Rippa. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. He just joined the show, private investigator and forensic expert Kevin Rippes, discussing some of the behind-the-scenes details of the hacking of the Ashley Madison Internet dating site 
for people that are married. So, Kevin, you were just starting to get into this whole idea of people thinking they were anonymous when they signed onto this website. Yes, uh, and and this happens in many places online. We we think that we can go somewhere, enter in all of our most personal information, and it is somehow 100% bulletproof. Technically, it cannot be, simply in the way that the Internet works. So when you go to a website and you put in a username and password, there has to be something at the other end that authenticates that, that compares what you put in to what was entered when you set up the account to see if they match. And if they match, you're allowed entry and you can do whatever you want. Well, remember, you're being allowed entry into someone else's house, so to speak. And although you can control the information that you give to someone else's house, you have zero control over how the person in that house controls the security in their house. Do they lock their doors? Do they lock their windows? Do they have windows? Uh You have no control over that. So if someone decides to smash a window and come into that other house, they can take your stuff. And so for people, it, it just boggles my mind how in today's day and age, people would log into Ashley Madison and set up accounts with email addresses from work. And when I say from work, I mean bases, you know, dot mil email addresses, government email addresses, and, you know, government A, three-letter agency email addresses. Mm-hmm. You know, people in those agencies log in from work and set up their account and do it from there, thinking that nothing is ever going to happen to them. So it all comes down to how the other end secures the data. In the case of AshleyMadison.com, they had great security for the customer data, probably uh, as good as somebody could have in terms of anybody, you know, hacking into the data from that perspective. Okay. Uh, It was encrypted. It was set up the way it was supposed to be. So then everybody says, well, how did they get it? They didn't hack in through the customer portal. There's only certain ways that you can hack into another computer. And if you imagine a house with doors, we don't hack through a wall. You have to come through a door. So you have to find those doors. Once you find the doors, well, how can I get into that door? Well, if that door is, has seven deadbolts on it and three chains and it's all steel, we're probably not going to come through that. But if you go around the back of the house and there's a door with no padlock or a really cheap filing cabinet lock on the door, it's going to be easy to come through that door. And in the Ashley Madison case, that's essentially what ended up happening. Uh, I mean, reports are that that the hackers got in through what was supposed to be a secure uh, virtual private network tunnel into the servers. In other words, not where you as a customer might go, but where the operators would go. The, The IT specialists would log into the servers to do administrative stuff. And the password to one of those VPNs was PASS1234. Oh, my gosh. And so here you have people who have been hired to set up and maintain security on the entire network, and they're breaking some of the most fundamental rules. Uh And that's how these folks purportedly got in to the servers. Well, once they're in the servers, they, they own you. They own the keys to the kingdom. So how do they find... They pulled all this data out. Sorry? 
how do they find that backdoor tunnel? Well, that's where things get quite technical. Um, we use various types of scans to... Uh, now, I'm greatly oversimplifying things, but okay. basically, <laughs> if I Please can find do. out... If I can find out what your internet protocol address is. Now, the IP address is assigned to your computer for that time that you're on the internet. So if you log on to the internet now, your internet service provider, the people you pay money to, give you an IP address so that you can go around on the internet. Uh, you, You have to have that. And it's unique to you for that time on the internet. If you're a website, you also have an IP address But generally speaking, that will not change. Because it doesn't change, it's easy for me to find out what it is. There's tools that we use and places we go online, and we'll put in ashleymadison.com, and at the click of a button, it will tell us what the IP addresses are of the website, of the servers, the computers that the website sits on, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We can run scans against things like that, and it will tell us what ports are open or what services are running. Now, ports on a computer are just like doors on a house. They're a way into and out of the computer. So if we think of email, for example, you've got uh, port 443 or port uh, 25 or port 20. Imagine doors. If you want to get your email, you need to go to door 20 and open the door and go in and your email is going to be in there. Well, that's like a computer, but a computer has over 65,000 of these doors. Not all of them are open, but we can scan them all to see which ones are open. Maybe they're open, but they're secure. Why are they secure? What is securing them? If something simple is securing them, we can bypass that security and walk through that door, and the computer will give us anything that it is not specifically configured to not give us. Okay. So once you're in, you're in. So had Ashley Madison secured that door with a better passcode, then maybe they wouldn't have get, been able to get in. Is that what you're saying? That, that would be fair to say. When, when, when we attack passwords, um, there are a number of different ways that we do it. And most people think that, well, we just have programs that guess passwords, and we start with A, 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 B, A, C, And that's brute forcing. And yes, we do have that capability. But we also have the ability to know now that with data dumps from hacked websites, there are are, are websites that show passwords from millions of hacking dumps. So you have a really... Now, they're, they're out of context. We don't know whose password that is necessarily, but we know that was used as a password. So then what they do is they take these millions of passwords... And they create lists. Just imagine a text document with password after password after password on it. Right. And we can create custom lists, and they're called in the industry, they're called rainbow tables. And it's easier for a computer to compare something against a known than against an unknown. So in other words, if I have a list of words I want you to test as passwords, Uh that's going to go way faster than you trying to guess them. So we'll go to an area where we need to enter a password, and we'll use special software to try and bust that password. And in these rainbow tables, they've already been constructed so that, for example, there's a rainbow table for Webster's Dictionary. So if you're using just a normal word, we're going to guess that in about 
three seconds. Wow. No matter how long the word is, if it's in a dictionary, we're going to get it very quickly. So, so it, there, is, there a, is there an algorithm that's set up to do the search? Is that what happens? That's, that's essentially the way it is. Uh, we're taking a list with all of these passwords, and because password is one of the most common passwords in use, of course, that's the first one everybody tries. That's <laughs> right. the first one the program tries. Password, or people get creative, and instead of an O, they put a zero. Well, the program knows about that, and it tries all of those common ones first. Pass one, two, three, four is a very common one. And as a matter of fact, is the default password from the factory for certain virtual private network boxes. Oh, my goodness. And so they took it out of the box, set it up, never changed the password. And anybody, you know, people think, well, how, how can you guess that? All you have to do is go to Google and you put in something like, you Google something like default passwords for Netgear routers. And you'll go to all kinds of web pages that show what the factory password is. You know, you hear all of this controversy about baby cameras right now and, and people hacking into these baby cameras and streaming the pictures online and everybody screams at the hacker. Well, you could have avoided that if you just set up a password, but you didn't. So they yeah. use the default password and they can see your, your camera feed. So can it also search for parcel passwords like just P-A-S-S, for example? It will search for anything I tell it to search for. Okay. If I right. say I want you, if I, if I say something like, listen, I know that the password starts with P-A-S-S, but I don't know what else is there. Right. It will start from that point rather than having to guess the pass. It will already start there and continue from there. Okay. And when you get, get computers that are connected to each other in some type of a grid, it just runs exponentially faster to guess these passwords. And, and a password like pass one, two, three, four, seconds to guess that 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 wouldn't have been getting that password would have been trivial interesting interesting well there's a big huge lesson in that one so so why did what's the purpose what's the motive for the hacking well there can be a number of different motives let's face it people are already monetizing this in many different ways Um, typically if you can hack this and release it Impact team, the notoriety for your name. And notoriety in the hacking industry is a very big thing. Another big thing is commercialization of data. If I've got a list of information from, you know, in the Ashley Madison case, we're talking about, you know, how many millions of people, 32 million accounts, that's worth money to people. That's worth money in the underground If I come in and I say, I've got 32 million accounts that have not been compromised yet, how much will you give me for them? The cheapest that these things will sell for is, you know, a dollar to three dollars an account. Well, if all you did was hack somebody's computer in your spare time and you got 32 million accounts and you sell them even for a dollar a piece, that is worth something. Now these things get churned up and parted out and and their email addresses are sold as spam lists and their, their passwords are sold as password lists in rainbow tables. You've got all of their credit card information, so you can sell the credit card information. And that's, that's basically how you know, credit card fraud is working online now. But it's all going on to the dark web. And this is you know, a part of the Internet that most people are completely unaware that it even exists. Exactly. So in, in, in terms of the dark web, and that's where the impact team released all of the Ashley Madison data. 
was on the dark web. Now, the dark web, you know, most users think that Google has everything. I go into Google, it searches the entire network. In actual fact, Google and any search engine can only return results for web pages that it has indexed or looked at before to see what its contents were. Google has approximately 3% of the Internet indexed. That's it. So when you see millions of hits, that's, that's 3% of what's really potentially out there. That's now, the dark web is a part of the Internet that is not technically indexed. And in their case, the impact team, they had released this information uh, through something called TOR. Uh, TOR, T-O-R, stands for The Onion Router. And it's, a, it's basically a way to look at the Internet and surf the Internet with complete anonymity. And, you know, there are ways to get to Tor through a web page, but then you're not secure. To be secure on Tor, you have to download some software, install it, and use that as your entry into the dark web. There's a lot more technicality to it than that. But basically, that's what it is. Now, okay. in terms of monetizing things, you've got people who supposedly have gone into the Onion Router, pulled all of this data, brought it out, re-aggregated it, and are now selling it online. There's, there's a number of PI websites now that are right. saying, hey, come to our website, put in your email address, and see if it hits on this Ashley Madison stuff. And is that, is that possible to do? Well, technically, yes, it is absolutely possible to do, but you have to be careful now because you don't know what they've got. You're just trusting that that's what they have. Do they really have the list or are they now just collecting your email address? Mm. Again, if you've got a million people running to this website and putting in their email address to see if it shows up, there's a guy who's now got a million more email addresses than he did this morning. Now we look at another angle that we're seeing in large part right now, is the extortion end of things. People are going in and taking these email addresses and sending emails to them saying, blah, 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 I know what you did. I, I know your name, address, phone number. I'm going to go to your spouse and tell them what you did unless you pay me X. And right now, X, the going rate is anywhere from 225 to $300 to make them not contact your spouse. Are they going to contact your spouse? I doubt it. They, they're not interested in that because that takes time. They just want the quick score, the mm-hmm. quick money. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to these free sites and plugging in an email address, that's another email address that they can send that extortionist email to. You've got some PIs who are selling it as a service. You don't know if they've got a real list. You have no idea. In order to properly check a name against the list, you would have to find either know how to find it on the Onion router or know somebody who has collected it and, you know, you trust them that what they have is the real thing, that they're not aggregating an email address and that they're truly just checking the database to see if an account exists. But the bottom line at the end of the day is this. Don't ever do anything on the Internet that you would not want to see on the front page of the Washington Post (laughs) the next morning. Exactly right. (laughs) Not only is there no privacy, there's no protection. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And so, privacy is, is, is a great thing. I mean, you, you were talking about it earlier, how, you know, privacy is dead. And, it, and it's so true. You know, people hear about this on the Internet and they complain about the loss of their privacy. 
but these are the same people running around with credit cards and using it everywhere to collect points. So now there still is somebody, the credit agency, who knows where you live, where you've ever lived, who you're married to, who you were ever married to, where you work, where you ever worked, where you shop, what you buy, how much you spend, the car you drive, where you go on holidays. So, you know, people who have never bought a computer or used one are still on the radar everywhere because they use credit cards. Yeah. Yeah. So is privacy dead? Yes, but let's not get on the computers for it because... We gave that up a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and you make a good point about the rewards uh, kinds of systems because everybody's offering those today. And mm-hmm. you're giving them all kinds of information on those. That's right. That's, that's why a reward program has been set up. Anybody that thinks that a company set it up for altruistic reasons, you need a reality check. Yeah. Amazing. So at this point, um, my goodness, if, <laughs> I, I mean, I can't even imagine what somebody must feel like. I mean, granted, they're cheaters. Most of them are not, probably not all, everybody that went on to Ashley Madison were cheaters, but they're cheaters and, and they, they were uh, operating surreptitiously. And I can't imagine how people across the country, 32 million people are feeling, waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, and this is this is very true. You know, they're sitting there going, "Well, who's who's going to look?" And and that's the thing. Okay, my data got out there, but certainly the nightly news isn't going to isn't going to show all thirty two million names, addresses, phone numbers. Uh-huh. I would suggest that the people, you know, the average person who has used that site and set up an account, you know, they're going to be worried inside. Yeah. But the ones that really need to worry are people with a public profile where there is, shall we say, an ax to grind by exposing them. Josh Duggar is a great example. If Josh Duggar wasn't Josh Duggar, would his name be all over the TV that he had an account? Of course not. Probably not. not. And the prosecutor from the Casey Anthony case that just came out. mm -hmm. And and people who are using .mil addresses. A very interesting thing about, about the penal code within the U.S. military is that it is against military law. Adultery is illegal in the military. You okay. can be kicked out of the army for adultery. So all of the, and they're just now trying to figure out how it is that they can deal with this because they've got so many people <laughs> that use dot .mil addresses to set oh up goodness. Ashley Madison accounts. All right. Those Kevin, are the we... ones that need to be worried. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> we need to take another break, Kevin. We'll be back shortly. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Kevin Ripp is my guest, and we're discussing the the Ashley Madison phenomenon. Oh, Kevin, why did why did Ashley Madison get on Impact's radar? How did that happen? Well, one of the one of the trains of thought right now is that uh, as as part of the hack, uh, certain emails had been extracted and posted, and there's some emails uh, that went back and forth between Ashley Madison's CEO and his top IT fella that uh, discussed the fact that his IT person was able to gain access to a website called Nerve.com, which was uh, at the time a, a potential uh, competitor of AshleyMadison.com. And there's emails back and forth talking about that he has the entire content of that website and, and what did they want to do with it. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot more email after that talking about what they may or may not have done with it, but certainly, you know, could retaliation have something to do with it? Yeah, Nerve.com was an American uh, online magazine that talked about sex topics and relationships and that kind of thing, wasn't it? Or isn't it? Um, That may have been one part of it, but the databases that they stole were... Um, dating profiles and things like that. Okay. So, uh, I, I, if I recall correctly, they had Nerve.com had looked at getting into that area and ultimately did not get into the dating arena. Um, I could have my, my facts wrong there, so take that with a grain of salt and certainly yeah. <laughs> you know, verify. But uh, that's the scuttlebutt that's coming out from some of the released emails that uh, impact team put out that they had found on the servers. And there was something about uh, this, com- this co- well, other company wanted to buy Ashley Madison or wanted to uh, merge two companies or was there something about that? Um, I, I hadn't heard that, but that's a, a distinct possibility. You know, any hack like this certainly can be used as competitive intelligence. And, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly, I've certainly been approached by enough people myself to know that it absolutely goes on where companies call up and say, listen, can you do X, Y, Z? Can I? Yes, I can. Will I? 
No, because the idea of spending the rest of my life in jail doesn't excite me. Um, <laughs> imagine why. <laughs> but obviously, if they're calling me and I'm saying no, there's people out there that are saying yes. Yeah. And there's no honor among thieves. If these people are hired to do a job, for example, and once they get in and they see exactly what's there, they may decide that they can uh, remonetize it more significantly elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And how do you find these people? You know, that, that's the next, uh, the next project. That's the thing that the Toronto Police and, and other cyber agencies are working on right now. And the, the tragic side effect is that the Toronto Police have attributed two suicides already to the right. release of this information. Exactly. And, you know, I was just going to say to you on the break that I said to my husband the other morning, this is one of those times when you have that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach is, oh, my goodness, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, you know? absolutely. Oh, my goodness. And, and plus, just the, I mean, they said that it had nothing to do with our financial data being compromised. But the reality is, you know, there are all kinds of sensitive documents, driver's license, personal checks, all kinds of things that were included on that website that people can be exposed from. That's absolutely true. There are the identity theft issues. Uh, I would suggest that, that uh, you know, from my perspective and the things that I see on a regular basis um, are things like phishing attacks and, and uh, you know, the, the emails you get trying to trick you into clicking a link. Um, obviously, you know, if you get something from a bank that you don't deal with, you know that that's a phishing email and, and you know not to click on it. Exactly. But then there's such a thing as spear phishing, which means I've gathered enough intelligence on you, Francie, that where you're smart enough to not click on a normal phishing email, there's going to yep. be so much content in this email that you're going to believe it came from a trusted source, and I will get you to click on something. Well, how do I get that information? If I can get a list, yeah. like the Ashley Madison database, I now have two very important things. I've got your email address. I've got your password. And people are creatures of habit and they will use the same password everywhere. So if I start checking banking sites and Gmail, bank, uh, Gmail email accounts and Hotmail, if it's a Gmail account that Ashley Madison has, chances are very good that if I go to that Gmail account and I use that same password, I'm going to get in. Once I get in, I read up all, I read all your emails. I get to know you and I get to know the people you communicate with. If I find out that one of these people is a CEO of a company, I can now send them an email looking like I'm you. They're going to click, and now I've got all their information, and I'm in their computer. So just the hack itself is only one small portion of this. This is going to have ripple effects that that we haven't even thought of yet. Oh, I can definitely see that. I mean... Plus, if, you get a, if you're one of these subscribers and you get an email that even mentions this data, you're, you're already emotionally involved. You're already sucked it right into the computer. Um, exactly. So, so what is being done to track down these hackers? Well, the police are using, obviously they go to, they'd be doing this from two different ends. Um, there will be teams looking at it from the Tor side of things uh, inside this onion router, trying to figure out where the data came from to be put there. And then there's going to be uh, a second team that is looking at Ashley Madison's computer. So they'll be doing computer forensics on a number on the servers 
because obviously somebody came in. Uh, a lot of people have this misconception that you can hack a computer and take stuff and leave no trace. And that's just not the way it is. And as a matter of fact, the more you try to cover your tracks, the, the more noise you're going to make and the more trails that most people will leave behind. The top 5% of hackers in the world, nobody's heard of them. Nobody knows about them and they're not on anybody's radar because they are that good. People like this who publish their work, they're good, but they're maybe not that good. And so you'll have forensics teams at Ashley Madison looking at these computers, uh, analyzing their, their logs to see who connected to the server, when, why, uh, where did it come from? So in these logs, they're hoping to get IP addresses. If they can get IP addresses, that's where they're going to start the investigation. They'll be tracing these IP addresses. Well, we traced it to a hospital in Connecticut. Well, chances are that the hack didn't happen from there, but somebody hacked into that uh, computer and, you know, used it as a launching pad. So it's just, uh, you know, they have to find this information. If there was a virus, if there was malicious code placed on the Ashley Madison servers to help send this data out, then, you know, there's a number of different forensic techniques that they can use, incident response techniques to watch what the computer is doing and who it's trying to communicate with. That can be another, another method. When it comes to the Tor browser, it's widely regarded as anonymous, but uh, in the industry, it's becoming more and more known that they are doing things like deep packet inspection on the packets of data that are moving around within Tor, the Tor browser to help trace this down. And they're having some great success. I, I have a couple of colleagues that... That's all they do is deep packet inspection, nothing else. And that, that's head and shoulders above and beyond anything that I do uh, or that I have knowledge of. Yeah. You know, that's bleeding edge even to me. But, they, you know, they've got a lot of stuff in their back pocket that they're working on now. Are they going to catch these people? I think yes. So I think isn't at some there point a way, they will. Isn't there a way to mask your IP address so it can't be recognized or traced? There's many ways to, to do that, yes, but there are a number of other techniques besides the IP address. Um, you can't just fake an IP address, put, it, put in any number that you want, and then access a computer with it. It, it has to be something that's not going to create a conflict on the network. So basically, that's what they'll do with the Onion Router uh, browser. If you're doing stuff from in there, you're basically... Uh, instead of my computer going to the website, so the website gives my IP address, I'm going through this computer and this computer and this computer and this computer. So there may be, you know, five computers between me and my ultimate destination. And so the ultimate destination is going to think that I am the fifth computer in the chain. And if you can get to that fifth computer in the chain, you might be able to trace it back to the fourth computer in the chain and leapfrog back that way. Where the problem becomes is what kind of information do these computers that are in between you and the bad guys, what kind of information do they maintain or do they maintain anything? The next problem becomes what if one of these computers is in Nigeria or is in Easter Island or is in Russia? Uh -huh. They're not going to help you. Right. So that's where the trail goes cold and that's where you have problems. So right now what they're doing is you wait for the hacker's own hubris 
to be their downfall. And right now they're looking at a guy named Thaddeus Zhu, if that's his real name, as if not being the hacker, absolutely knowing who the hacker was. He has information that no one else would know. Uh, there's a bunch of history on the internet about him that, that completely gels with the MO of this hack. Mm-hmm. So they're looking pretty closely at this fellow. Right now they don't know who the person is. But, you know, it's all of this information and it's all of this bragging and it's all of these tidbits that even when a hacker leaves it behind, it's out there forever. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, it's really amazing how many people's lives you can affect by just a push of a button. <laughs> um, That's absolutely true. But people need to know when they sit down at the computer that it, it's a window to the world. And the window isn't just you looking out. It's the world looking in. How much so, do you want them to see? So could, could they protect themselves by going to like an internet cafe or something like that? Uh, could who protect themselves? The, the hackers. Uh, they could, but that's kind of a Mickey Mouse way of doing it. That's what we call script kiddies. People who really don't know how to hack, they use somebody else's tools to hack. That's how they would do it. They'd go to a a Starbucks or something like that and start working from there. Um, In actual fact, hackers, I would expect at this level, they don't need to go to a cyber cafe. They have enough insulation between them and the world that uh, they... I don't want to say are untouchable, but certainly think they're untouchable and are certainly harder to trace than the average person. I, pro- I suspect there's probably some, definitely some arrogance there, no doubt. Uh, that they there think always they, is. Yeah, that they think they can't be touched. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so that's how they, uh, that's why they're talking about it. And the more they talk about it, that's more evidence that can potentially be used to identify them. Exactly. Kevin, this has been so interesting. We're almost at the end of our hour, but it's a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is uh, fascinating. Well, uh, of course, there'll be more unfolding as days go on, I'm sure. We'll find out much more than we probably never wanted to know. Well, the pleasure was all mine, and I thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely, and uh, thank you to my sponsors, too. IRB Search, a proprietary proprietary data provider, I can't talk today, for legal professionals, and they can be reached at irbsearch.com, and PI Magazine, of course, the magazine for private investigators at pimagazine.com. So if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer, Sondra Rogers, at voiceamerica.com. Folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators, and wait until Ashley Madison unfolds some more. And thanks to Kevin Rippa. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 